From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Happy holidays, and we're not really near the new year yet. We're, we're, still, we're still a week away. We're still a week away, but happy holidays. Hope everyone right, had a good right. weekend. Yes. Um, I can't believe we're doing a, like a, a Monday pod. Like, you know, we just, this is how much we love the people. <laughs> that we, <laughs> we're we are so devoted committed. to a pod during the week when no one really does anything. So maybe you're not even listening to this one. We'll see. <laughs> this one's going to fly right <laughs> under the radar. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you I know. think this is, this is, no, no, no. I, ha- I have to interject here for a second because I think this is a misnomer, at least from all of my experience. There's this belief in media that no one consumes content between Christmas and New Year's. And I think that's to- a total lie. I have nothing to do but consume content during this week. <laughs> I don't have what to do. I don't have anywhere to, I mean, I don't have anywhere to go. And this idea that like, oh, just everyone tunes out. It's like, I desperately need something to do to listen to, to read, especially at like three in the morning when I'm trying to get my daughter to go back to sleep. So I beseech all of the millions of people listening to this who make the pod other podcasts that I love. Please don't go dark for the entire second half of December. It fucking sucks. It's <laughs> a good point. Yep. We're here for you, people listening to this at all hours of the day and night. Who knows where you might be? <laughs> I know. So I have, I have a quick question for you guys before we get into, uh, you know, what we drank. How do both of you feel about caviar? You caviar people? Yeah. 100% caviar person. I'm looking for a caviar sponsor. <laughs> God. All right. You're, you're ridiculous. <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone is listening to this and like it, you know, might. I mean, Russ and Daughters has a really nice caviar selection. They do. Mm-hmm. Russ and Daughters. New York's original. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of fish eggs in all forms. It doesn't have to be caviar. Like, give sure. me some salmon roe. Give me some tobacco. Mm-hmm. My only thing is I have developed a seafood allergy, maybe, and I'm unclear right. if that extends oh, to, no. to fish eggs. Haven't really gone down that road yet. So um, I am theoretically a caviar enjoyer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to tin a caviar and go for it. Yeah. <laughs> caviar sponsor, Controlled if you'd like study. to, I will absolve you of any blame if I go into anaphylactic shock from consuming your yeah. product. It's not your fault. <laughs> You know what else I, I I'm doing on New Year's Eve? Ooh! I bought these miracle pills. M Y R K L. We'll see if they come in in time. But it's like this all the rage in uh in Great Britain for the last year and like Europe. <laughs> I guess developed in Sweden by some like medical company that's been researching for years. Apparently, like it causes. Your, Explain what these are. They sound weird. They when you sound say weird. Miracle pills, please. I, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take them and just see what happens. I'm it's curious. For a hangover, everyone. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> you have a really wild New Year's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're supposed to? Well, I'm gonna give them to some other people too. <laughs> oh yeah, cool. Just uh, dose your friends. Sounds if, great. If they if they <laughs> if they come in time, but basically what it's supposed to do is it's like it's basically probiotic, but they apparently say they've researched this for. I mean, they have a lot of medical study like medically medical studies they've done and like i had one of my friends who's a doctor read the study I was like yeah this is actually a legit peer-reviewed study but the, the claim is like that there's these probiotic strains that they've cultured and created that you you take this probiotic an hour before you start to drink and it causes and the bacteria from the probiotic processes the alcohol in your intestines before they can re- it can reach your liver okay. and so you so it keeps your blood alcohol level not high and also prevents your liver from releasing so many toxins okay. from processing the alcohol. And so you apparently like don't get as inebriated, but also don't feel bad the next day. Now, again, it's within reason. Like you read right. their medical studies. It's like, it's, it's a difference of having like not feeling great after four or five drinks as opposed to like, you're not going to feel great after 
10, like right. regardless. Yeah. But I'm curious if like just on a regular night, you could take this and then, you know, have the normal dinner of like coursed wines or whatever and not feel as crummy, crummy the next day, potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious. I will report back. Yes, (laughs) please. Uh, if this works, uh, Miracle Pill, sponsor the podcast, send me some. Yeah, My, I know, seriously. <laughs> nothing um, would make me feel like I'm living in the future more than the ability to take a pill to alleviate a hangover or in some way obviate it. Like, cars don't fly yet. I don't have a jetpack. Yeah. But if I could take a pill and then drink like three glasses of wine and not feel like shit the next day, that would be close to the future for me. Well, there was this whole article recently in The Times where they were talking about how they anticipate that the hangover remedy market is going to grow in the next five to six years by like 14 to 20 percent right because it all is being is like all surrounds this idea of like hacking your life so like that movement continues to be very very big in the world of like health and tech so you know i have a bar that replaces this meal i have a drink that replaces these things i'm supposed to get naturally and like i'm take a pill so i can have alcohol but not have the effects like all of this movement and there's all this development and miracles just like the first one to come out recently um but there's going to be more and more of these kinds of products that hit the market which is so interesting yeah i think this is fascinating yeah Maybe maybe a podcast on it soon. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, what are you drinking, Zach? It's, it's like it is the holidays now. I'm sure you've been opening some good stuff. What's going on? I have. Yeah. You know, been. You know, not that Caitlin and I are you know stingy with the bottles of wine or the good bottles throughout the year, but certainly uh, the last little bit we've had good cause to open a few nice bottles. I think probably the highlight for me lately was a, a 2011 Pinot Noir from Beckham Estate down in the Willamette Valley. Uh, producer I've really enjoyed for a long time. Uh, they're in the Shehalem Mountains specifically. And it's just like 2011 was like such a great, it's one of these funny things about wine, right? Where the perception of a vintage in a region in at the time that the wine is first being released and, and first being reviewed by all the people who review it, and how it evolves over time. Those things, unfortunately, are not always well aligned. In 2011, both in Oregon and Washington was a very cold vintage. And the wines at the time were generally not considered to be exceptional because of that. You know, they tended to be less uh, bold and fruit forward at release. They tended to be, you know, sometimes a little bit, let's be polite and call them subtle. Um, some might call them kind of uh, thin. And yet they've the well-made ones, which this certainly was, and many others that I've had, are are just have aged really beautifully, and you get a kind of complexity and delicacy in Pinot Noir that is sometimes hard to find in um, America, frankly. Um, but from these cooler vintages, not just in Oregon, but I think you see the same thing in in some of the really cool sites on the like Sonoma Coast in California, etc. It's just beautiful wine. Uh, it was really delicious. Made uh, some roast chicken and mushrooms and green beans and stuff to go with it uh, the other night. And yeah, that was that was the standout for me over the last little bit. But uh, you know, coming up, got got uh, my birthday, got some special bottles lined up. But you'll have to stay tuned to the next Monday's episode for that one. So, how about you, yes. Joanna? Yeah, um, this past weekend we had some friends over. We made vespers. Not sure why Evan decided he wanted to do that. It was a drink that was new to them. So that was good. Um, and then I made some white ladies on Sunday night, um, which is a drink I haven't made before, but I was inspired, as always, by the Cocktail College podcast. This was one that um, our Emily Arsenault 
did that episode with Tim. Um, so I made that. But what I really want to make is a Boulevardier with the spec from... Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, Amanda Amanda Gunderson with the green chartreuse um, added at the end. That sounds so good. Um, but those uh, those are the drinks that I <laughs> I made this this past weekend. Nice. What about you, Adam? Um, I've gotten a chance to have some tasty things. So I went to this new restaurant in uh, New York called the Wesley mm-hmm. um, recently, and the Somme there actually has been like a fan of vine pair for a very long time he actually came to some of our early events when he was just a, a server and then worked his way up and worked at like llama inn and llama san and now oh, is the nice. beverage director um and so uh, his name is gabriel and he makes some really awesome uh cocktails and has a really cool wine list that features lots of local stuff so the goal is to really have new york and like the surrounding east coast area wines as well as wines made by women mm-hmm. um and owned by women uh, and the the restaurant is a like vegetable forward restaurant, so it's not vegetarian. There's mm-hmm. there are meat dishes, but like the idea is the vegetables take center stage. And I had like a really delicious coquito actually Ooh. because he's Puerto Rican, and so it was delicious. Like I haven't had a lot of coquito in my life. It was honestly, it's better than eggnog. Mm-hmm. It just is <laughs> like. It was really, really. T- it was like the most delicious rum milkshake I've ever had. Uh, that so sounds good. I had that, and then he poured some. He poured like a really fun, uh, sparkling wine from the Hudson Valley, oh. which I had never heard of before. Should have taken a picture of and didn't. Uh-huh. Um, but but that was uh, that was fun, and then just some you know some other really cool cocktails. So it's it's a. I think it's going to be a spot that gets a lot more attention. It's only been open for like a few weeks, actually. Uh, I think it'll get a lot more attention in the new year because it's really cool. And it's in the West Village in a really great location. So they'll be fine. Nice. Uh, yeah, but that's, that's probably the most memorable thing I drank this week. Excellent. Anyways. All right, team. So year in review. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I mean, first of all, my year was great. But oh, awesome. uh, thanks for asking, guys. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I think it was a good year. It was a good year. I think it was a good year for Vine Pair. Uh, it was a good year in just, I think, the world of beverage. Some really fun stuff happened. But wanted to take this time, as we do every year, to sort of chat about some of the biggest things that happened in the world of beverage this year. Um, I mean, I think the most, the biggest thing that's closest to what we've most recently talked about is obviously sort of the... I want. I don't want to say the, the death of DTC, but the, mm-hmm. the beginning sort of... You know, the the wolves in sheep's clothing revealing themselves, a sort of idea that, like, these were houses of cards, all whatever analogies you want to use, <laughs> that a lot of these, you know, more premium, mediocre brands uh, that were – that it had gotten – raised lots of money and tons of press over the last five or six years. The Vine Pair's always been dubious of all of them. Just want to be clear about all that. <laughs> we have the receipts. Uh, you know, started to fold this year, uh, thinking about Wink, House, uh, others. I think there's going to be more of that in 2023. Do you think that trend happened across categories or only in the drink space? I think it happened. Look, there's always direct-to-consumer brands going out of business in yeah. fashion, you know, luggage, et cetera. But nothing – these were like the faces of it. Sure. These were the ones that got all of the real press. Um, whereas like Warby Parker is still not – you know, still doing okay, right? And – Casper. Everlane's doing fine Everlane. and Casper's doing fine. Away. 
away is doing just fine. Right. Uh, there are others in their category that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this was like this was a problem in two facets, right? One was all of those categories, even if their numbers may not make a lot of sense, who knows, they're still clearly able to raise capital. This was like the like both of them were really great examples of the fact that like the businesses weren't really there sound in the first place. And then the ability to raise money evaporated because of that. Right. And the category didn't seem that interesting anymore to investors. Well, I think it's just that they were slow to pivot. Yeah. In a way that the other categories didn't necessarily need to. I think it is very true, actually, for food, food startups, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Investors want scale fast and they want big exits and they want um, they want national fast. And that's really, really hard in alcohol. Sure. You know, you have to get permits in every single state. You can't really go into every single state. The shipping is very expensive. And in a lot of food as well, especially when we're talking about like perishable foods, that's also very difficult. And that's why investors love software. That's why investors love, you know, suitcases and, you know, new underwear startups, things that are light and easy to ship. Like they can go in, you know, uh, flexible packaging that is yeah. is dirt cheap to, to put in the mail. And that's why they don't really love these areas. And I think whenever trends like this happen in the broader startup world, alcohol always tries to adapt to them and, you know, adapt them and say, oh, we can do it too. And I think we're starting to see much more of an honest conversation in alcohol in general, you know, as a whole saying, like, we are very different. Like this yeah. is a very different industry and maybe we can't do what all these other industries can do because of the legal barriers, because of the kind of uh, product that it is, the weight, all of it. And uh, this was true. One other piece of this is that every couple of years or so, you get this like section of the, I guess it's the trade that's like, hmm, people like drinking. People use the internet. What if we combine the internet and drinking? And like yeah. the problem is just no it doesn't work, right? Like it it has not been made to work. No one has figured it out. And for some of the same reasons, you know, D, obviously these DTC brands are heavily, you know, kind of online whether it's their advertising for, uh, sort of platforms or the just the way you interact with with a company in the first place. But I think the biggest problem that we've we've seen really is that whether it's because of the the legal structure here in the US, I also think it's because of the incredible lobbying power of the wholesale industry that really is at best, uh, let's say, agnostic to these efforts and largely antagonistic towards them. Sometimes, you know, fairly, sometimes not. You just can't say like, oh, let's develop an internet-based solution for wine, beer, spirits, et cetera, that mimics a solution in another category. You just They're not transferable. You know, Adam, you mentioned food, and I think there's some truth to that. Any perishable good is going to really struggle. I mean, look at Amazon, right? Even Amazon has not really gotten into this space, even though you think they would be the natural – I mean – they're enormous. They have the, you think, the infrastructure, and they certainly aren't dumb. They understand the incredible amount of money in the domestic beverage alcohol industry. But for a variety of reasons, they're just not doing it because it's hard. It doesn't scale well. It's legally cumbersome. And again, you have a lot of entrenched power structures that are you know, very heavily invested in the current model. And so this was a year that not just the companies you mentioned, but a few others bit the dust in the face of this reality. And I just... It, 
it's weird to me to watch people not learn the lesson that which is you can't just be like combine internet plus wine or whatever and here comes the profit machine like it just doesn't work that way yeah well i think also covid kind of gave people the false you know false opportunity there too maybe yeah 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 i think it did i think because everyone thought that all this stuff would stick. stick. And mm-hmm. I think what stuck was that people did embrace cocktails and are making more cocktails at home. I think what <laughs> did stick is that people embraced premiumization and mm-hmm. buying nicer wines for home, nicer spirits for home. What did stick was people's interest in drinks and drinking. But what didn't stick was buying these things online. Right. They went back to being like, you know what? It's actually better when I go to a shop that's close to me and buy it on my way home or buy things when I need them. Then, like, I'm going to do a huge order. It just I, I know that there are still wine shops I talk to that are doing a decent amount of, like, online sales or, or delivery sales. But no one seems to be, like, crushing it like they were during COVID because people don't need to shop that way anymore. And yeah. there's not – the, the added cost to shop that way for a lot of people is kind of annoying. A lot of the wine shops and things like that are like have minimum order quantity, yep. minimum order values and like shipping costs, shipping costs and things like that, which like consumers don't want to pay when they are like, look, there's a really great wine shop a mile away from my house that I can drive to or three blocks away that I can walk to. That's what I'm going to do. I'm mm-hmm. not going to like pay all these added fees. Right. And if I can't get your product there, then oh, well, oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, What else? Okay, so I have one that I want to talk about because I think it's related to this this last piece of what we were just talking about, which is on-premise sales are still down. And, you know, we talked about how in a lot of ways we've seen the, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's returned to pre-COVID exactly, but let's say some of the the structures and, and realities of the, you know, kind of peak COVID era have largely abated but this one has not it's definitely on-premise sales are up compared to you know again the deep covid period for sure but the balance in where people are buying beverage alcohol has not gotten back to where it was pre-covid and it leads me to wonder and maybe ask the you know this is maybe something to think about for our you know next week's episode the 2023 predictions but also to look at this year in review and wonder like why is it that you guys think that that element has not returned. Is it what you were getting at before, Adam, that people just sort of have gotten sick of of restaurant bar markups? Is it that they are savvier? They have, you know, the the tools, the wherewithal and the ingredients to make cocktails at home. They're just not as is interested kind of as a collective in that experience out. Like it surprises me that here, you know, at this point at the end of 2022, when so much of life has gone back to something like a pre-COVID normal that has not really rebounded fully. So I think you answered your own question. Um, I love it when I, I do think, that. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that 100% that's what hap- is happening. Yeah, but, I think it's all of those things. Yeah. But I also think that it's it's other things that we've discussed on the podcast in the past, right? It's it's now everything seems more expensive. Yeah. And the drinks seem smaller somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and then also the service isn't there. Yeah. Because the hospitality industry is still struggling. So why are you going to spend all this money to go out to have these experiences that aren't meeting your expectations of dining out from before? Yeah. Um, and I even think like this week, in or like this holiday week, right? I've been out two or three nights this week. Um, one to a very well-known restaurant that's known for its service. Like the company is known for its service. Mm-hmm. Service was meh. Yeah. You know, Um 
I, you and you can tell it's because they're stretched thin. They had two private rooms booked for private parties. The restaurant was packed. Like you know, so again, like food was great as always, but I don't think I want. I don't think Assam once came over. Um, you know, you look at the buy the glass prices for wines, especially, and they're like twenty five and thirty dollars a glass, Ooh. which is insane. Um. You look at the cocktails and they're all around 20. Then another, you know, night I went out this week and I went to a cocktail bar where I've never seen prices as high. I think it's probably the highest price I've ever seen in New York City. There was a highball on the menu for $40. Whoa. Like, and like, yeah, they talk about like their process and blah, blah, blah. But like, it was insane. And you're seeing that price creep everywhere. And I think consumers are like, I can make a highball at home. I don't care about your process. Right. Like, I can make a, a pretty good martini. Like, I th- that's what's happening. I know a lot of people who've learned how to make espresso martinis at home. And, like, if that's their drink. And have them before they go out and things like that. Like, I just think that this this idea and, – and restaurants are – I get it. Food costs are going up. But mm-hmm. – you know, this this somewhat impending recession, I actually, you know, consumers are, for the most part, as we've seen, all the research says, still pretty much doing just fine. Mm-hmm. There's a few industries that are doing layoffs. Now, you know, the a lot of these sort of business people believe it's really because of, like, wanting to shed weight than actually because there's a recession. Like, that's this idea of what's happening in tech is these layoffs are actually because they're the companies are too bloated and they're using this idea of an impending recession as an excuse um, but most of the consumers are still doing just fine and have, uh, you know, cash to spend. But they're also not. I think. I think what we don't. What we. What everyone has to recognize is COVID made everyone smarter. Yeah. Like COVID well, made. I think it, also more selective, and yeah. it's something you brought up before. Like maybe you're not going to go out to dinner three or four nights a week, you're going to go out once. Yeah. And that's why we're not seeing the same growth in on-premise. Yeah. And I think like a lot of it, Zach, is what you and I talked about a long time ago, where it was like, if you're going to come back from COVID, it was just two years ago, right? Like in our predictions episode, and we said, like, the cocktails have to be really unique. And I'm still seeing a lot of them that aren't. A lot yeah. of lists that are still like Boulevardier, Negroni. Yeah. Like martini, but thirty dollars. Yeah, and I'm just like, no, nah, man. And and I know how much that gin costs. Yeah, I know how much Ford's gin is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and you can't charge me thirty dollars for a martini with Ford's gin when I know how much Ford's gin is. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't. Can I get into my next one then? I think Please. this is a good segue yeah. Go. of reviving the classics. I think we've seen that. Yeah. Across the board, maybe they're riffs or you know, a bar's take on a classic cocktail, but I think they very smartly have capitalized on this knowledge for drinkers or people who now know more about classic cocktails and are now more interested in them after the past couple of years um, to have those offerings specifically on their menus. And I think that's been really interesting to see. And it kind of factors into this, this other thing that we're seeing with like, yeah, people can make them at home. Why would they go out for them? Um, yeah. But just more awareness around classic cocktails. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, very much you've seen that. And you've seen the trends of them get, you know, bigger and bigger. The martini sort of the leading martini, the way. Yep. But I've seen lots of Manhattans recently, a lot more than I used to. Or mm-hmm. I've seen Manhattan riffs. We see now the Godfather coming back. We see a, lo- a lot of these very classic, classic the cocktails. Cosmo. Yep. Yep. It's all coming back. 
I, I think, you know, that the 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 other thing that we've continued to see is premiumization. Yep. Right. And it it's happened this year. And again, it doesn't really show signs of slowing down. Um, and so you've seen that play out in a bunch of different ways. Consumers who are when they are spending, spending on nicer uh, beverage companies who are shedding their lower end brands uh, and trying to go higher end, um, you know, beverage directors who are thinking about what that looks like on their lists. I mean, again, like I've said, I, I've never seen higher end wines on wine lists at, at just normal casual places than I have recently. Um, just this idea, that, again, when consumers go out, they are spending, and I do believe they're also spending when they're at home. It's they're opening nicer wines across the board, which is uh, you know something that we've, the industry said they've wanted to see happen for a long time now, and it, it seems to really be happening. I want to piggyback on this really quick and talk about how one of the think the biggest indicators to me of how this change is is evolving and how kind of premiumization is in in all facets of the drinks industry taking hold is I think another trend that we saw this year, which is in the seltzer category, uh, FMB is so flavor malt beverages losing ground to. Uh, mostly vodka-based, but generally spirit-based seltzers, and also to RTDs, which are kind of hard to categorize and sometimes fit into one or both, but that people have basically said, wait a second, like, I like some of the structure of the of a, of a hard seltzer, but I don't really want to be drinking malt, <laughs> like yeah. like flavored malt beverages. And I, I'm honestly been a little surprised by this one. I kind of assumed that things like High Noon would be, you know, not like they would fail, but just that they would not be as popular as they've become. But it's it's it feels like we are uh, we are moving towards a world where even if those things come with higher costs and, and to be clear, the spirit based ones do they have to legally because they're taxed differently. Yeah, they're still really able to to some extent to eat into the pre existing market share for malt based hard seltzers, and I think it's coming from two directions. I think it's coming from a little bit of the kind of what we've thought of as the core seltzer base that's just like maybe a little bit over the the over FMBs, but I think it's also that Seltzer has surprisingly found a robust market among, I would say, kind of casual drinkers who are our age and older. But those are people who are, I think some of them are okay with FMBs, but a lot of them are for whether right or wrong health reasons, looking at being more comfortable drinking a spirit-based seltzer than a, a malt-based one. They also just taste better. They do. Well there's that too. And I and I think that that's and I do think that's where we're moving is towards people who are thinking much more about spirits based seltzers as like the thing that they want to drink. Yeah. And again, maybe maybe this is going back into like that that that's like what's replacing that need to have the vodka soda, et cetera, when you're out is these spirits based seltzers instead. People are buying them more at the bar or then you're buying nicer cocktails. Uh there's a canned vodka water. I just wanted to mention that. Wait, really? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> is it? But it's not diet. It's not a canned diet vodka water, no. right? You haven't gotten there yet? That'll be 2023's year. I'm really upset world. about this. Why, <laughs> why did you just tell me this right now? <laughs> it just occurred to me to, to mention it. Let's let's roll the calendar over to 2023, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of stuff that's happened this year has been really fascinating to me. I also think one of the, you know, what's continued to happen every year is – the proclamation by publications that something is going to be a trend that never is <laughs> dirty Shirley, but like <laughs> other, th you know, it happens every year. Sherry's going to finally come back. No, it's not. You know, I think that seems to continue to be something that there are publications that don't have as much of a, 
basis in drinks, feel mm-hmm. they're experts on, and because of whatever they, they make these these bold claims that just are never true. You know, it's yes, you can say that the espresso martini is going to be a huge drink because you can see everyone out drinking it. Like you can't say a drink that no one has ever seen order or drink is going to be the next big drink. Well, I think that's Stop because it. the danger here lies in social media. And I think TikTok is a is a huge part of this, right? Yeah. So I think you're seeing things happen there and the speed that trends kind of come and go on those platforms um, is much faster than what we see out actually out at bars. Yeah. So, so I think it's like places trying to hop on these trends that they see on social media and calling it a trend, but they're actually just flashes in a pan and not actual trends. Yeah, you know what I think is really interesting, actually, if you think about it this way? I don't think, and I, you know, I've delved into tip, TikTok, tried to be You active love TikTok. On, yeah. I almost never see espresso martinis. On TikTok? Yeah. Hmm. I see lots of other cocktails. I see lots of other random weird cocktails that people are making and talking about, <laughs> like, you know, mixing Starburst with Everclear or whatever oh. through their coffee filters. <laughs> but, like, no one's actually ordering those drinks out. But what they're ordering out is espresso martinis. And I think, like, that is also should be a real lesson for people, Mm -hmm. like, that the drinks that, like, random influencers and creators are making on TikTok are for attention and in order for these videos to go viral and maybe not necessarily ever getting made or even thinking about being consumed by the people who are watching these videos. And, you know, TikTok's a very visual space. And it's the same as Instagram, right? We we saw that forever where we said, like, just because something is happening on Instagram doesn't mean it's happening in the real world. And I think this year was a very clear example of that where there's a lot of stuff that happens online in the metaverse, (laughs) you know, that's it's not (laughs) happening in, in real life. And I honestly, I don't see a lot of people teaching you how to make a really great martini on TikTok either. Like and that cocktail is also mm-hmm. booming um it's it's always these things that are really uh you know crazy they're fleeting because, because that's what's fun to watch yeah. yeah you know it's fun to watch someone try to make a, a, a you know a milk punch how many people are making milk punches at home or even ordering them out you know how many milk punches i see people making they're on tiktok ex- oh. but how many i actually see on restaurant lists anymore because they're very labor intensive yeah. I'd like to try to make one in the new year. I never made one before. Yeah, you should do it. Uh, yeah. Put it on Maybe TikTok, Adam. Come on. Yeah. But you know what I mean? <laughs> I just feel like that, that's, that's something that's just always a really good lesson mm-hmm. for everyone. It's not just about what you see trending online. Yeah. And on that note, too, I want to mention, I don't think it's worth a whole lot of conversation other than just a note here that one thing I've been seeing and thinking about a lot as as this year draws to a close is, you know, we've seen a lot of turmoil in social media over the last year, whether it's sort of what direction Elon, is TikTok going. Is that you? <laughs> god please never say that again chief yeah. twit is that what they call him chief twit <laughs> yeah god and yes my beloved twitter who knows what's going on there uh we're just gonna leave that alone there's other podcasts for that should you care but i do think that one thing that's really interesting is and i'm sure that we've you know we've all experienced this in our own way that brands that i think had come to count on social media as a key spot for them, whether it was direct advertising, you know, sponsored posts, or, you know, trying to just kind of be in the background, go viral, I think are a little bit unsure of what the landscape looks like. Because I think, as we talked about when we did our TikTok episode, one of the things that's tricky is it's hard to, it's a little harder to commoditize, and it's harder to control because the algorithm is so 
kind of hard to wrap your head around. And obviously control of the platform is not, I mean, all of these platforms are sort of opaque in their control, except for maybe Twitter, which is weirdly very transparent in a kind of fucked up way. But um, (laughs) anyhow, I just think we are in this place where you have a lot of brands, it seems, that would like to be putting money into advertising on these various platforms, but are unsure of how to do so because it's really unclear what's happening. You know, Facebook is struggling massively. I don't know that Instagram is. I think Instagram is still doing fine, but like, it's just a weird, like, it's a weird time. And I know we don't focus on social media a ton here, but as Adam was pointing out, as we both pointing out, it's importance in how people discover drinks, connect to drinks trends, and be engaged with drinks content is still very powerful. And yet right now it feels like we're in a weird space where no one's kind of sure what it's going to look like in 2023, what, how people are going to connect through social media and what kinds of content or what platforms are going to dominate. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, anything else you think we missed? I, I mean, I think the non-elk space, the options we saw this year, I mean, we just, we watched it kind of explode and I think it will continue to do so. There's more projected growth for the future for no and low, as they like to call it, even though these things <laughs> should not be lumped together, um, as far as I'm concerned. But um, but I think that's been really interesting to watch as well, um, kind of as we concurrently to all of these other trends. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I wanted to mention is just we talked about it on an episode not that long ago. You can listen to that if you want more. But the incredible amount of money pouring into the bourbon industry uh, oh, yeah. that that major uh, corporations are are either acquiring existing distilleries, pumping huge amounts of money to build new facilities. They are all very, very, very bullish on bourbon and are clearly betting on not just the continued success of it, but its continued growth. And especially yep. in the you know upper tiers, you know, a lot of these these plays are about being able to have older more older whiskey on hand in five to ten years or more and i think that definitely bears watching and and just noting i don't think there's a lot we talked about it recently but i just it's it was a huge part of 2022 absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely well uh let us know if you think we missed anything um and hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com Have a wonderful week, and we will see you back here on Friday for a special episode. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere if you are listening to this on a device right now through an app however you got this audio please drop a review it really helps everyone else discover the show and now for some totally awesome credits so the vine Pair podcast is recorded in our new york city headquarters and in seattle washington in zach jabal's basement it is recorded by zach mastered and produced by zach he loves all the credit keep giving it to him drop his name in the reviews he's gonna love hearing how much you love him It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff, 
and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.